This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, tax museum curator and accounting professor at the University of North Carolina, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. The order of those things always changes, and I wonder if there's any kind of systematic uh, systematic reason why. Well, it's not why. systematic, but I can't actually figure out which is most important in your life. I kind of They're feel all... like it's the tax museum curator, but I'm not sure. It might be tax museum patron, since you're also the only one of those. I'm not quite sure. Correct. In any case... There are more important things to talk about today. Jeff, tell us what's happening. Yeah, so today we are excited to have Dean Lillian Mills with us, uh, and we're really excited to have her. So as a, as a, to get us started off, Lil, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Jeff and Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been Dean of the Macomb School of Business here at the University of Texas at Austin, for two years, a year as interim, and then a permanent appointment a year ago. And prior to that, I was a working tax professional in my 20s with two big four firms. And then after my PhD, had been a professor of taxation at University of Arizona, and now at the University of Texas for 16 years. And throughout that academic career, was a consultant to the Internal Revenue Service and worked for a year on sabbatical as a Stanley Surrey Senior Research Fellow at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Okay, so that resume, I mean, we, Jeff and I have known Lil for a long time. Lil's like one of the senior amazing people in our profession, but Lil has done some interesting things which many of us have not including have significant influence on the way taxes are filed by corporations and others. And what we want to talk about today is this strange thing, which would be strange to some people and not to others, but called the Schedule M3. All right, so tell us, Lil, what is Schedule M3 and what was your involvement? So um, I, I know you have a wide audience of both tax geeks and laymen, so there is a form that corporations file that explains the differences between the income they report to their shareholders and creditors via their financial statements and the income they report as taxable income to the IRS and to many other jurisdictions, but the US government only has jurisdiction to require tax filings uh, of the US operations. And so US taxable income is a different dollar amount than the entire financial book income of a company. And so this is a tax form that now in a high level of detail reconciles those two numbers. And prior to the Schedule M3, for 40 years, there was a 10-line, overly simplified, not very useful reconciliation. Okay, so actually that's, let, let's just like, for people who are kind of 
sometimes listen, you've probably heard us talk about sometimes these companies like Amazon report $11 billion in income to their shareholders, and then they don't pay any taxes, and it hits like the headlines of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and it seems sort of scandalous, and it's like, how did they do this? And what you're talking about is this form, Schedule M3, which the firms have to file, which helps the IRS reconcile how is it possible that they reported $11 billion to shareholders and like nothing to the IRS? And so for the IRS, it might not be a complete mystery. It's, it's not a mystery correct? at all, right? They get this extreme level of detail. The IRS knows exactly why. So the, new, you know, the news makes this to be a big deal as if um, this company is doing something wrong, but they file a form to the IRS saying here's exactly, exactly what the difference is. And the thing that was the most compelling in uh, my arguments about the need for a more detailed form isn't that the IRS can't compel information. So once they select a company for audit, they can compel any information they want. The problem is they need to decide who to audit and once selected where to focus. And so having more detailed information in the original tax filing permits what we now call data analytics, better large sample analysis to help the Internal Revenue Service better assess where the risky companies are and within a particular company where the riskier transactions are. So I really like this because this, I think, harkens back to this is like a perfect intersection of academic research and policy because your research early on, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been your dissertation, was sort of a paper which said, hey, firms that have these big book tax differences, differences between financial accounting and tax accounting, they, they, if they get audited, they, 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 the IRS should look at them and audit them and they can have more success and so forth if they do audit them. So tell us how you went from writing a dissertation about this and then like later actually having such an influence with the IRS that you were able to help them create a form that would provide them with more information to make their audits more useful. Well, Scott, I need to give a nod to my mentor, Joel Slimrod, who was uh, uh, Jeff Hoop's senior colleague when he was a professor or a student at Michigan also. And Joel Slimrod introduced me to the senior IRS researchers for large business and international. And when I was a PhD student, I was fresh from my professional experience where I had watched large multinationals make decisions late prior to their filing with the SEC about their tax risk. And so when the IRS was first merging financial statement data with tax return data, they in fact asked me, what could you do if you had these data? And from my professional experience, I knew that some of the aggressive or assertive or complex planning that companies did, did create, it worked in the discretion between how you do your financial reporting and what the law requires in your tax reporting. And some of that discretion shows up in a wider gap between what you tell shareholders who by and large want good news about the company and what you tell the IRS where 
all managers face an incentive to report lower taxable income to uh, reduce the cash outflow they have to pay to the taxing authority. So I said to the IRS, if you will loan me uh, under privacy constraints, your data access, I could test the hypothesis whether conditional on auditing the company, does this gap help explain the non-compliance you've identified as a proposed audit adjustment? And Scott, you're right, the answer was yes. This is 25 years ago, so the statistical tests were relatively simple, but it started a trajectory of research trying to better understand the implications of those differences, both income and balance sheet related. So what you asked then is, well, how did this lead me to proposing a new tax form? Um, I graduated in 1996 with this dissertation, and then Enron uh, imploded in the early 2000s, shining a lot of light. So the Joint Committee on Taxation filed a huge report identifying some of their special purpose entities, and in that report was a big spotlight on the difference between what they told their shareholders and what was reported to the IRS. And in the context of that company failure, uh, UNC's tax group asked several of us professors nationally to come speak at a conference about the use of financial reporting data in uh, analyzing tax situations. And Michelle Hanlon had a paper at that conference around the value of tax footnote data. Joel Slimrod and a co-author had one around corporate tax return privacy because there were arguments to make all the tax returns public. And I asked George Plesko from Connecticut to co-author with me a paper about the limitations of current tax filings for usefulness in the IRS enforcement process. So in that conference, I presented our paper criticizing the 10-line form that was largely uninformative with a proposal to really expand that reconciliation. And I think Several things politically made this a favorable time to request more disclosure. The Tax Executives Institute was wary of the congressional proposals to say, let's make all corporate tax returns public. So that would be a corner solution they didn't want to see happen. And it was a climate where more sunshine um, was something companies didn't want to lobby against. And so a requirement to have a form that only the IRS saw was something the Tax Executives Institute did not oppose. And in fact, my discussant at that conference said, this is a good idea. And that's the sort of endorsement 
that gives the IRS and Treasury the green light to go propose something that is admittedly a compliance burden because they know on the front end that it won't meet as much hostility from the practice community. So we had the conference and about six months later, I was invited into a joint task force, IRS and Treasury to write this form and create instructions for it. And we worked for about a year and would send draft proposals actually in some conversation with the corporate community. So it also enjoyed more uh, collegiality than tax authorities often enjoy with corporate America. Um, but so hang on, do they just give you like a blank slate and they're like, you, you can do whatever you want, like see what you can come up with, then you talk to executives. I mean, was it kind of like that? Just come up with what you can? Well, so my research informed what the problems were. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned uh, Amazon as a global company. Uh, one of the big differences between book income and a particular country's taxable income is where the earnings, uh, where you're earning your profits or your losses. So the US only has jurisdiction more or less with income earned in the US or brought home from overseas, uh, with some exceptions from the 2017 uh, Tax Act. But, but the US doesn't presently have the right to tax all income everywhere. So one reconciliation is jurisdictional. Your book income is worldwide. How much of that belongs in the US? So that's one big thing. The other one is what's the definition of a tax family? Uh, in accounting, we call that a consolidated filing. In tax, it's an affiliated group that can elect a consolidated tax return. Um, if you think about your own human being family, if you ask how big's your family, some people only talk about mom and dad and brothers and sisters. Other people talk about, well, I've got a whole bunch of cousins. So the question of who's in the family differs for book and tax purposes. Um, and a simple example is if the parent company owns 51% or has control over a subsidiary, it's in the book accounting family. For taxes, to be in the family, you have to be 80% owned and be a domestic company. So who's in the family creates a lot of differences and the form also describes that. The third thing that honestly really was me pushing for is in these differing definitions of book income and taxable income, there are some differences that only occur once, and that's the difference forever. And we call those, uh, our colloquial term for that is permanent differences. Other differences reverse over time. So for example, you might depreciate something, that's allocating the cost over time 
for books, but on your tax return, maybe you get an immediate write-off. So over time, the expense is the same, but it occurs in different periods. My observation talking to IRS auditors is the easiest money to get was to challenge a temporary difference and accelerate some tax in the door. And companies didn't fight it too hard because for reasons outside this podcast, it didn't affect their book income. So I was observing uh, auditors, IRS auditors, examiners, going after what was easy to write up as an adjustment, but it didn't have meaningful long-term permanent effects on the U.S. operating budget. So George and I recommended, and this went through the form, that these differences be distinguished whether they were permanent or temporary. Because if the IRS misses a temporary difference, they'll get another year to look at it. But if they don't audit a permanent difference in the year it occurs, they never get another bite at that apple. And so I thought it was important information for the IRS to assess. And so that was a unique thing added to this form that I think was of uh, information value to them. So within all those permanent and temporary differences, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of different line items that weren't on the M1, the predecessor form. So how do you, I mean, how do you come up with all of those? Is it just like your understanding of accounting? Do you ask a whole bunch of different people? There's a lot of different things. And then of course, there's still an other category. How do you decide what was brought out of the other category into the, how how do you do that? So um, when George and I were giving a bare bones example of what such a form could look like, uh, if, If anything, our focus was a little bit more on this multinationality problem and on the permanent versus temporary problem. By the time we were writing the form, which the first page is all about that international reconciliation, the second page is revenue item differences, and the third page is expense item differences, there were smart IRS people and treasury people on the committee. Uh, One of the treasury people was Charles Boynton, who over his career had been both in the IRS and at treasury uh, and had been working on tax compliance issues for decades. Another one was Robert Adams, who was a former corporate tax director and That meant he had been in professional practice even longer than I had as a CPA. So I wouldn't say I was the driver of those line items. It it was, and, and at that point, Robert Adams was working for the IRS, that the IRS agents themselves and the treasury people who come in and out of practice had plenty of experience about which line items to include. So once you have all these recommendations, all these different pieces, is it just some, you know, by regulatory authority, the IRS or Treasury can decree that all firms file this, or does Congress have to pass a law, or how? What what makes this thing binding? Oh my gosh, Jeff! Um, 
this this is less my area of expertise, uh, but one does not need a legislative mandate to add a tax form. So the IRS has broad pro powers to compel reporting that allow it to enforce its tax laws. Um, uh, so somebody at the Treasury can wait, wave their magical wand and we got it. That's right. Uh, they do have a process whereby taxpayers can complain about burden and the IRS attempts as it creates a new form to estimate the burden. How, and we would see this in our personal tax returns. So if there's a new form for the Affordable Care Act, how many hours does it take me to fill out that form? And then the IRS, I think, has to do a report to Congress about the burden it's imposing. As you might expect, burdens on small business and on individual get bigger headlines and more sympathy than burdens on really big uh, multinational corporations. And the Schedule M3 has a size threshold. And, and now I might reveal that I'm a dean instead of a tax professor now. I have forgotten whether the threshold is 10 million or 100 million, but I'm guessing one of you guys knows. That'd be Jeff. If anybody knows, it's got to be Jeff. Jeff, what is it? 10 million. 10 million, he says, even though he probably doesn't know either. Oh, well, all right. So now I got a question. You've done all this stuff, all this work. The M3 starts getting filed. It's been a thing now for many years. Is there any evidence that it, like, how successful has it been in achieving the objectives that you, you know, set out to achieve? Do you know of anything along those lines? So I would be looking at various papers by Petro Lasowski up at Boston University and Aaron Towery down at University of Georgia. Um, they have each used the Schedule M3 data, uh, Pete Lasowski in particular in tax shelter analysis. and without being able to quote from their papers uh, as precisely as I would have been able to five years ago, I, I would say there is reasonable academic evidence that it has been useful. Um, okay, now here's and, the second question. Sure. Do you have any regrets, things that you wish would have been on this that didn't end up there that you think, oh, in hindsight, wouldn't it have been great if? It, would, it was in color. That's what I did. Oh, that's what was <laughs> my guessing. We need a color no. tax form. No, not so much that. I know after the year I spent on the project, they then had to or chose to extend it over into the partnership realm. And that's when I started paying a little less attention. I think that gets awfully thorny. So I don't know if there would have been a simpler rollout there. The, the other thing that um, is really complex from a compliance point of view is the requirement that the Schedule M3 not only have a top-level consolidated filing, so for the entire U.S. return, but it has a requirement that the subsidiaries each be filing the form with 
what we would call an eliminations M3 to package the whole thing together. Uh, I, I suspect if there are compliance complaints in the mid company level, it might be the level of subsidiary filings. And yet, if the IRS wants to use the overall data to figure out what to go audit, they actually need to know what company's books and records the transaction is on. And that's why you require it at each subsidiary. So I, I don't have regrets. It's a funny legacy. I'm not going to have it carved on my tombstone, um, you know, like an image of the M3. Does your um, license plate say M3? No, 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 no. Um, and uh, it is uh, so one of the things I believe about tax compliance is most of corporate taxation is a gray area. It is not divided into cheaters and angels. There is lots of judgment required and it is hard to write bright line tests in tax legislation. And yet I want a fully functioning tax administration to be fairly collecting revenue because if they fail at that, the rest of us have to pay higher tax rates. It's like if you have a whole bunch of holes in the dike, the rest of us have to bail more water into the reservoir. So. We need companies and people paying the appropriate tax that they owe so that it can keep the rates and the hassles down for the rest of us. Um, so it, anything that advances that mission, I'm proud to have accomplished. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's really kind of an amazing thing. And I think one of the, the thing that I think is amazing is the um, cooperation between practice academics and um, regulation, right? And I'd be curious, like your thoughts on that sort of thing going forward. Like how can academics and practitioners and regulators work kind of more efficiently together to come up with a world that just works better? Well, it, it was an unusual time there in the Enron collapse, uh, on the heels of that was some dot-com bubble burst. It, I think another political issue at around that time had to do with stock option accounting. And again, the political energy created some changes in the financial reporting for stock options because of some of those political concerns. So uh, I think... I think accounting and economics and law professors always have in their back pockets, here could be a better idea and you have to wait for the time to be right. The year I worked at Treasury, Scott, was 2005 and 2006. And it was during the George W. Bush administration and what was on the table was corporate tax reform, and the co-chair was Charles Rosati, who had formerly been an IRS commissioner. And I arrived around September 1st, 
And about a week later, Hurricane Katrina uh, hurt New Orleans, crippled New Orleans. And a significant number of the Treasury economists spent a large part of the year on Hurricane Katrina relief. And the political conversation changed in a way that there wasn't um, the sort of congressional cooperation that will support tax reform. And so it was a very interesting year where when I talked to my students about it, it's Hurricane Katrina uh, came ashore and wiped out tax reform because there wasn't any political appetite for it in the middle of you know, displaced people and broken dikes and FEMA trailers and debit cards. So, so the, the suggestion yeah. is always have some something you could say, but you have to wait for the right moment because I there's a lot of so. wrong moments. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of wrong moments. Um, yeah, and and Jeff, I know you work in that sunshine space too. When is uh, public attention? to whether it's overseas bank accounts or whether it's uh, appropriate reporting of uh, all kinds of pseudo tax matters. When does it matter? So public opinion is very hard to move on tax matters in the sense that I'm going to buy what I want online with very little consideration to whether the vendor is someone whose tax policies I approve of or not. Okay, now you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but I want you to speculate. Do you think something like the M3 or even tax returns in, in an environment that we have now where there's a lot of scrutiny over these companies that report high incomes but low taxes? I know you mentioned this at the beginning, there was some movement to require them to be disclosed publicly. Do you think it's possible sometime in the near future, maybe five years or 10 years, where we might see publicly traded companies in the United States being compelled to disclose aspects of their tax returns, like the M3 or the, the full like tax return? Yeah, I, I used to think that was more likely when I was younger. I, I think now... Uh, publicly traded companies in the U.S. would be successful in lobbying that that would be a global disadvantage when they're competing against global companies increasingly from China and, of course, big ones elsewhere in the world. And so if that were a U.S.-only requirement, that is uh, a lot of data to trade unions, employees, competitors, uh, that, those are the typical arguments of why we shouldn't do this. So the proprietary uh, cost argument is the sort proprietary of, cost argument. Yeah. But but I think the competitive, if you're competing against a European or a Chinese company that doesn't have to do it, that's more compelling than I don't want my U.S. competitors to see my information. Yeah. 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 Okay. So last. Last question, okay? Another one to speculate on. There has been some movement uh, in the last couple of years to impose a tax on financial accounting earnings. I can't think of anyone, and by the way, Jeff and I have both written publicly about this in the Wall Street Journal and other places. 
I think you are probably the most qualified person on the planet to have an opinion about that. I wonder if you want to share it with us. Sure. I think that's a very bad idea. Um, we have financial reporting for a reason. We, we, as an accounting profession, work very hard on what standards of reporting provide the most useful information to shareholders and creditors and other stakeholders. And that's the aim of the International Accounting Standards Board, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, certainly the um, uh, regulators like the Securities Exchange Commission. They have a particular stakeholder group that they're trying to provide fair information to. Taxation has a bundle of other stakeholders. We're trying primarily to raise money to fund the government. And that's true whether it's the United States or Germany or South Korea. But mixed in with what would be optimal, efficient taxation is a huge bundle of political considerations. So economists might argue it's inefficient to tax dividends or dividends plus corporation income, but politically it's infeasible to, to eliminate that because of the socioeconomic perceptions of who it helps and who it hurts. So given that the tax system is both revenue raising and an economic lever in good or bad years to permit faster write-offs, to not permit, to subsidize industries that the government thinks are important, to penalize other activities. Um, I just, I, I, ha I have a fairly strong opinion that taxing the financial reported income is distorting to the capital markets and if Congress thinks the tax system has too many loopholes, they need to fix the tax system. That's what we elect our Congress to do, among many other things, is pass laws and tax laws are one of them. So when I have watched tax laws that say we're going to tax something around book income, It is a substitute for the backbone to actually address the tax loophole. So, yeah. um, well, thank you for that. I, I do think that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's rare that we have an opportunity to talk to someone who has been so intimately involved in the differences between financial accounting and tax accounting, including the information that the IRS has available right. that describes to them the differences between financial accounting and tax accounting. Yeah. And it's, it's great to hear your opinion. Jeff, any final questions? Nothing. I'm questionless, as always. Well, Lil, thank you so much for joining us. It's fascinating to hear this story, and it's interesting, in my view, to see how what you did really almost 20 years ago is still mm -hmm. has a big influence on the way the world works today and, and could affect it going forward. So thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Scott and Jeff. This was fun. And... And yes, it was sort of fun to answer that very frank question. Is this a good idea to tax book income? 
Yeah, I, I think we can always use improvement in the tax system. And if it's not doing what we want, that's what ought to get changed, not attaching it to some other system that distorts that other reporting system. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Lil. Um, I'm Scott Dyering. I'm joined as always by Jeff Hoops. This has been another edition of Tax Chats. Our guest has been Dean Lillian Mills. Thank you again, and we hope to catch you next time. Goodbye. Thank you.